mercy. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. How's everyone doing? feel pretty good. I had a swim already, so... <laughs> Choices, choices, choices. We make choices of every kind, every day, and every hour. Many seem inconsequential. Others seem quite consequential. But we can't avoid them. When to get up, what to wear, what to eat, where to go, whom to talk to, what to say, how to spend our time. Choices are all around us. But today I want to talk to you about one particular choice that we all must make. I want to set the options before you as clearly as possible and then call on you to respond. Many of you here likely have already made this choice, but that doesn't mean you never have to do so again, even on a daily basis. And some of you likely have not made this choice or decision yet, though not making the choice is actually a choice in and of itself. But there comes a time when, that we all must make a choice. And right now may be just such a time. The choice I want to present you with today is whether or not to turn to the Lord. To turn to the Lord. Will you turn to the Lord or turn back to the Lord? That may sound kind of cryptic or Christianese to you, but I think it actually makes things fairly simple. Turning is a picture of us making a conscious choice to change direction in our lives. Right? We, it's recognizing that our life is headed in a certain, or it's oriented to a certain direction, and us saying, I don't want to live like this anymore, and I want to turn around. After a couple of weeks off, we're returning to the book of Deuteronomy today, where Moses calls upon Israel to make a choice now, in the present, and, and he draws a line in the sand. And he also prepares them for the future when they would have to make this choice Again, and again, and again. So let's turn together to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30. If you have been following along with us, we are in the home stretch of this very long book now. For a, a huge chunk of the book, Moses explained God's law to Israel. Then in chapter 28, which we saw recently, he laid out the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. In chapter 29, he reminded them of how amazing the covenant that God was making with them was and what the grave consequences would be if they forsook it, warning that they would be uprooted and exiled in, in really devastating fashion. Now in chapter 30, the time came to make a decision. Did they really want this covenant? Did they want God as their God? Were they going to sign their names on the dotted line, so to speak? But whatever they chose, Moses knew that down the road, failure was likely, if not inevitable. And in fact, he begins this next section with when 
not if this would happen. Look with me, verse 1. It says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. So it appears that the blessing would come and then the curse would follow. But the incredible thing about this passage isn't that both the blessing and curse would happen. It's that the curse wouldn't be the end of the story. That the blessing could return. That the door was left, remarkably left open for them to return. Look what it says. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have said before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Scholar George Athis says about this, he says, with the, the curses and catastrophic nature of exile still ringing loudly, he now raises the prospect of restoration to the land after exile. Even after Israel has failed its covenant obligations, after it has experienced the curses of the covenant and failed to heed their warning, and even after the downfall and destruction of the nation and the exile of its people to other lands, even then, there's a glimmer of hope for them. There are three things that Moses says that they would have to do in the future to do this. First, that they would have to call them to mind. Call these things to mind. They'd have to, to wake up, to remember, to, to clue in to what was going on. Second, it says they'd have to intentionally return to the Lord. We saw that in verse 2. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children. By the way, kids, notice this was just as important for the kids as it was the adults. Even if your parents haven't been perfect or they don't love the Lord themselves, you can still turn to the Lord. It's important for you to start a new path of loving him. So they're to call the mind, they're to return, and then true returning was to spark obedience, a return to faithful living. But they, they couldn't do this half-heartedly. Just as the greatest commandment says that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, they were to obey God's voice, it says, with all their heart and with all their soul. If, or more likely, when the Israelites did these three things, what would God do? Saw it in verse 3. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. The big idea we're going to see here, and in what follows, is this. Turning back to the Lord triggers merciful restoration. And when we turn back to the Lord, it triggers God's great, merciful restoration of us. Without saying repent, verse 2 really is describing repentance, which is pulling a U-turn, doing a 180. It's turning away from one thing, sin, and turning to another, in this case, God. 
But in the Bible, repentance always leads to restoration. It always leads to restoration. God's mercy for sinners far outweighs their sin. And that is good news for us. Just look how extensive God's restoration would be for his people. It's beautiful. Verse 3, he says, The Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven or under the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. So he's going to bring them back from captivity, even from the most distant lands under the heavens. Then he would restore everything that they lost. And then some. Look at verse 5. It says, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Today, if, if we were to lose everything in a disaster, like a fire or a flood, you might have some hope of some things being restored to you. If, say, if an insurance policy paid out to make repairs or replace things. But there is no way you would end with more than what you started with. Right? Not so with God. He's far better than any ins fickle insurance policies. He would not only restore everything, but he'd go above and beyond, give even more. This is pure grace from God. And this pure grace from God was just both utterly unexpected and utterly undeserved. As George Athos explains further, exile represents the end of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. It comes at the end of Israel's persistent disobedience and failure. It is the situation beyond the brink when all covenantal ties have been severed and the last bridge has been burned. At that point, Yahweh has no obligation whatsoever towards Israel. The fact that Yahweh would at that point even entertain reaching out to any Israelite survivors in exile, let alone restore them to the land, shows Yahweh's sheer grace and goodness. It highlights his intrinsic desire to bless and prosper rather than to curse and punish. It illustrates his undying devotion in the face of rejection. For though Yahweh does not need to restore Israel, yet he wants to. And really, God guaranteed it would happen as he didn't leave it totally up to them. Look at verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Isn't that beautiful? The poetic Hebrew structure behind this paragraph, which I won't go into details on, but the, the poetic structure makes it clear that verse 6 is not only the center of this paragraph, but it's its central point. This is the main thing that he's getting at. Now, back in chapter 10, we talked a lot about circumcised hearts. But... We know that hearts refers to a, a spiritual center, an inner person, not the physical organ. And hearts don't have the physical properties that circumcision usually alters. 
So what does it mean to have one's heart circumcised? Well, heart circumcision is, is often in the Bible held in contrast to being stubborn or stiff-necked, resisting God's will. So a circumcised heart, as opposed to that, is a heart that is soft towards God. It's sensitive to God and His will. It's devoted to Him. There's nothing between that. Daniel Block concludes that Moses addresses the heart of the problem, Israel's ruptured relationship with Yahweh. The metaphor here refers to removing or cutting away all psychological, moral, and spiritual barriers to true devotion to Yahweh, resulting in undivided love and obedience. That make sense? However, back in chapter 10, Moses told the people to circumcise their own hearts. Here he promises that God is going to circumcise their hearts. And that's not a contradiction. People were to prepare their hearts to follow the Lord. But God is the one who would finally make sure it happened. And we are commanded to love the Lord. But God makes us able to love him in the first place. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live a number of the prophets echo this promise later on, such as in Jeremiah 32, where God promises, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And then this promise finds its fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Colossians 2 says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been, this is how it happened. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what this means is that if you have been forgiven of your sins by the blood of Jesus, your heart is circumcised. It's already happened. God has worked in you. So now you no less than supernaturally love the Lord. God's done it. Some of us, though, may be still pridefully resisting God and his word. We've either lapsed into patterns of sin or not listening to him, or we've never had this heart work done on us to begin with. So you may need to turn to God or turn back to God today, asking him to soften your heart, to circumcise it, to change it, and he will. His forgiveness and, and his restored relationship has been won for us by Christ. In verse 7, we see that God's restoration also includes justice being done. 
says, And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. So the, the curses would be reversed, right as faithfulness would be restored. Verse 8, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is a, a really a beautiful mirror image of some of the curses we saw recently, right? In chapter 28 and 29. Most notably, that, that God would again delight in blessing them. He'd delight in that. God would make them abundantly prosperous, successful in everything they did. And in verse 10, we see again the emphasis on turning to the Lord. It says, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If I were to, to summarize just these first 10 verses here, people were called to repent, yes. But how much more would God do for them? It says, the Lord will do this, and the Lord will do this, and the Lord will do this, and the Lord will do this, over and over again. God would restore them, have mercy on them, gather them, bring them back, prosper them, circumcise their hearts, avenge them, bless them some more, and delight in them. I wonder, well, did this repentance and restoration ever happen in Israel's history? And it did. Whenever they realized how wicked they'd been and came back tails between their legs, God did have mercy on them on repeat occasions. Consider, for example, the account of King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and 23. When it was discovered that the book of the law, likely talking about Deuteronomy, when the book of the law had been totally neglected and disobeyed, Josiah was devastated. And he then led the whole nation in some powerful acts of repentance. And God had mercy on that reign. But by that point, God's judgment on Israel, the exile, was really only postponable. It wasn't avoidable. And, and really, this passage in Deuteronomy 30 specifically talks about repentance after exile. After this had already happened. So when Israel and Judah were exiled into enemy nations, did they ever repent? Definitely to some extent. I mean, read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where God graciously is restoring a remnant of Israel to their land. However, those restorations didn't restore Israel to the same level of glory or freedom as before. So perhaps those are only partial fulfillments, awaiting the greater fulfillment of Christ. Or awaiting an even greater restoration of Israel that's yet to come in the future. That's very possible, especially if we read this in light of Romans 9 to 11, where Paul says, all Israel is going to be saved. And by the mercy shown to you, that's us, Israel also may now receive 
mercy. So in some way, a great mercy is still in store for Israel. Now, some suggest that modern Israel's restoration of the land of Palestine fulfills this passage, but I would not, since they certainly haven't repented of their rejection of their Messiah. Repentance is not part of the picture right now. And many of their actions certainly don't appear to come from circumcised hearts. It hasn't happened yet. But let's bring this passage into today for us. All right? We may not be in exile right now, but many of us are likely in a place where we need to turn back to the Lord and find his mercy again. And you may even be seeing some of the negative consequences of your choices in your life now. Right? And so in a way, it's like you're in exile. You're seeing the, the discipline, the consequences. Maybe you're, you're feeling the guilt of a, a secret cycle of sin in your life. Maybe you're seeing the damage that your anger inflicts on yourself or those around you. Maybe your marriage has been languishing because of selfishness or unfaithfulness. Maybe you're rotting away from bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred even against someone else. Maybe you've lost other people's trust your gossip, or lies. Maybe your spiritual life has dried up in the face of greed or lust or laziness. No matter where you find yourself today, if you wake up and return to the Lord, His mercy is available to you today. His mercies are new every morning. And his, and his mercy is far greater than any sin in our hearts. Jesus' cross proves that. At least for now, for now, there is always a choice for you to turn back. Right? Your current trajectory does not need to be your final destination. By God's grace, you can change. And if he saved you, you will change. That's great news. Our world has very little place for repentance and mercy these days. Consider just for one example, what happened recently with actor Liam Neeson. Don't know if you saw the, the news story about this, but Neeson confessed, confessed that one time decades ago, he had had murderous, racist thoughts against someone. And immediately, people just jumped all over him, criticizing him left, right, and center. Now, what he had done was horrible. Okay? There's no denying that. But he was admitting that it was horrible. He was coming clean, saying that he'd changed. But no one showed him any mercy. Why not? Stephen Neal commented, saying that in our world today, there is no grace, forgiveness, or restoration for those who transgress. I would have thought if we really do abhor racism, whilst not applauding the fact that Neeson was a racist, it would be a good thing that he repented of such a sinful attitude. But lo, 
there is little, if any, joy over a sinner who repents. We can't allow it because it takes away our right to feel superior about ourselves. So long as we can continue to find offenders whipping boys out there, we need not look inward at all the potential offenses that lie within. If only there was some other way. If only there was a means by which we could own our sin for what it is in a spirit of genuine repentance. If only there was some way of having our sin genuinely punished somehow so that there is no more sin to be punished in us. If only we could indeed have the freedom to acknowledge who we really are with all our faults and flaws and yet be loved regardless. I wonder where we might find such a thing. I hope by now, you know the only place you'll find mercy and love like that. The world may not accept your repentance, but God promises that he will. Now, you may have heard all this so far and thought, this sounds great, but also impossible. I mean, obey God's voice in all he commands. How, uh, turn with all your heart and soul. How are we ever supposed to actually do this? And on one level, we can't attain sinless perfection or absolute devotion for now. But on another more important level, Obeying God is always realistic. Obeying God is always realistic, especially if we have God's help and God's circumcised hearts. People in Moses' day may have been thinking along the same lines, like, how is this possible? But that is exactly what Moses didn't want them to focus on. All right, so look what he tells them next in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Here's what we're going to learn here. Turning to obey the Lord is doable. Thanks to God, turning to obey the Lord is doable. It's realistic. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not too difficult for us to follow the Lord's ways. Moses says it wasn't far off from them. In other words, it wasn't out of reach. Verse 12 gives a couple pictures. Like, not in heaven that you should say, who's going to go to heaven and bring it to us? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who's going to go over the sea and bring it to us? So that we can hear and obey it. It wasn't like it's some heavenly secret that someone had to go and retrieve. It had already been brought down to them, revealed to them. And it wasn't like God's will had been revealed in Mexico and Japan, but not in Israel. 
So they didn't have to go and set off on some great quest to find it. And this is an impossible thing for them to do anyway, in that they, no one had crossed the ocean. Chris Wright comments, the law is intelligible to all and accessible to all. Thus, to say that the law is not too difficult does not mean that obedience is easy, but rather that it is simple. It is not complicated and distracted by obscure philosophies, complex rules, or esoteric religious rituals accessible only to the privileged few. These days, people try to search and find God's will in all sorts of ways. And I'm not talking about just Christian ways either. All right, people seek after the divine and, and divine mysteries through various religions, mysticism, meditation, occult practices, and more. Or we scour the internet, read blogs, read books by everyone under the sun. But what it says, we don't need to make epic quests to discover God. He's already made himself known. So if, if, if God's will wasn't far away, where was it? says in verse 14, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. It's accessible. It's understandable. It's doable. God's word is very near them, so near, so near that they could speak it from their mouths, so near that God was already placing it in their hearts, giving them the desire to obey. If Israel failed, it wouldn't be because they were unable, but that they were unwilling. They were able. And in case you think this is just old covenant optimism, we come to the new covenant, and we're told that for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are what? Not burdensome. Not burdensome. To, to claim that God made his word deliberately impossible to follow, it's partially true, but it's a distortion of the truth. The, the straightforward teaching of Scripture is that ordinary people can live in such a way that their lives are, are broadly pleasing and faithful to God. We just don't follow his law to be saved. That would be impossible. We follow it because we are saved. God's commands were near them. They are far nearer to us with his new covenant in effect. After all, in Jeremiah 31, he promised that in this new covenant, he would put his law inside us and write it on our hearts. I was talking to Pastor Kenny this week, and he said that it was kind of like when a baby has a soother or a pacifier in their mouth, and, and the pacifier falls out. They freak out, panic, think all is lost, <laughs> when really they don't realize that their parents have just attached it with a strap, and it's right there. All they got to do is take it and put it back in their mouth. <laughs> and we got to grab a hold of the word and do it, because in reality it's very near us even nearer than a book. Turn over to Romans 10 with me. Romans 10, way in the New Testament. You may know Romans 
10.9 well, very famous verse, probably know it by memory. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever noticed that that's the second half of a sentence? A sentence which begins in verse 8 by quoting Deuteronomy 30, 14. This is what Paul says. But what does it say? What does the word say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth. In other words, it's not just Moses' spoken word that has come near. Now Christ himself as the word of God has come near. And in the verses right before that, I think verse 5 to 7, Paul draws even this parallel to Christ coming down from the heavens in his incarnation and coming up from the abyss, which is like the sea, in his resurrection, mirroring verse 12 and 13 in Deuteronomy. Christ has done everything that is necessary. But notice also, it says that the word is in our mouth and heart. And if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we're saved. Do you, you, you get this? You realize this? that hey, Christian, if you have, because of Christ, because of your confession of him, God's word has taken up permanent residence inside of you. And therefore, in Christ, responding to his word in faith and obedience is possible. So, so never let yourself be intimidated when, when you hear what God's word tells you to do. When God gives a command, he also can provide the desire and the ability to obey the command. And when we don't, he provides a savior who is as near to us as our very mouths and hearts. If, if the spirit is prompting you to, to give something up today, you can give it up. You can repent. If the Spirit is laying on your heart a course of action, you can follow through. You can obey. God's word and God's will are doable for us. And that is wonderful news. You may be tempted to brush all this off as not that big of a deal. I would urge you, I'd beg you not to. The final paragraph of Deuteronomy 30, you can turn back there if you haven't already. The final paragraph is basically a climax of Deuteronomy so far. And in it, Moses makes an intense and clear point that our response to the Lord on these matters is no less than a matter of life and death. See, turning to the Lord is life. Turning away from the Lord is death. 
Turning to the Lord is, is life itself, life in the truest sense, life to the fullest. And turning away from the Lord is death itself. Maybe not immediately, but inevitably. Look at how Moses says this in verse 15. See, look, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Like that should be an easy choice. I set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It's like good, life, good, multiplication, blessing, as opposed to death, evil perishing and cursing. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away, it's like repentance in reverse, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Moses says that he set these things before them as if he's laid out the pavement of two different paths in front of them. They could choose to walk down one path or the other. They could choose to make their homes on one mountain or the other. The famous poem, Robert Frost, says, Two paths diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. It's not an exaggeration that whichever diverging path you choose will make all the difference. In setting Jesus before you today, I am in a way setting before you life and good, death and evil, and you have a choice. Will you submit your heart to his ways? Will you turn your face to him in love? Or will you turn your back on him in rejection? Some of you have no idea the joys and blessings and life that could be yours if you will just reach out and take hold of Christ. Others of you are even today toying with things that will destroy you. You're headed down that path of death. But I'm here to say that you can get off that path now. God's made a way. You may feel hopeless. You may even feel that like you've already died. In a way, you have. Since we are all dead in our sin without Christ. When Israel was exiled, it was like they died. It should have been it for them. Exile effectively ended their relationship with God. They suffered death as a nation, which means restoration on the other end of that is nothing short of resurrection. And in light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, new life is now available to every one of us. Life or death, will you have the Lord or not? Everything's been building up to this. 
Right? Verse 19, Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, 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 choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Here's how I would I'd make Moses' final point our own today. Okay? Turning to the Lord is life. Turning away from the Lord is death. So choose the Lord. <laughs> Choose the Lord. There comes a time in all our lives when we must make a choice. A decision. And then we continue making that choice daily. Even hourly. Every time we turn away from sin and turn back to our Savior in faith. In verse 19, it's like Moses warns them about this metaphorical court trial that's coming one day. They'd be put on trial, and the star witnesses that would be called to the stand would be heaven and earth themselves. They, heaven and earth were witnessing this covenant that was being made between God and his people then, and they would see whether or not the covenant would be kept. So they could testify to future Israelites that they'd had a choice. Now, you might think that I've overemphasized human choice today over God's sovereignty. I don't think that's true at all. Chapter 29 made it very clear that God is sovereign. If he doesn't choose to open our eyes and our ears, we would never see or hear him, let alone come to him. But one thing that these two chapters together, back to back, make clear is that God's sovereignty does not negate or cancel out human choice or responsibility. We might not be able to wrap our minds around how they work together, but they do. The main thing I want us to notice in the fi these final verses, the main thing I want you to see, is the identity of the life we can choose. The identity of the life. In verse 19, Moses says, choose life. And, but what does verse 20 say about life? It says, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. God himself is the definition of life. Right? He is your life. So when God was saying to, to choose life, he was actually saying, choose me or don't. But he is the choice that's set before us. See, life is only rich and full and true and lasting if God is in it. Life without God is just a shadow. It's, it's a precursor to death. If you follow Jesus, are you aware that, that your life is entirely bound up in him. Nothing else matters if you don't have Christ. 
But if you have him, you have true life. When Jesus came, John said that in Jesus, in him, was life, and the life was the light of men. Then Jesus himself claimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So even though physical death still comes for us, we will live on. Because really, we've already died in the way that matters most. Right? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or as Colossians 3 puts it, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And now when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I ask you today, what's your choice? I don't think God's word can be any clearer. Life and death have been said before us. So turn to the Lord. Heaven and earth know what we've been offered. And they'll see what we choose. So will we have the Lord? Or won't we? pray. God, I pray that you would open eyes and hearts today. Remove the blinders. Call sinners to repentance. Call us to yourself. Draw us near. If there is anyone who's hesitating, move in them to come to you. Lord, I pray the words of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. May that be true of us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me.